The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello everybody, well, you've made it to Wednesday, so well done. You've got Karen Cho, myself Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. I'm afraid you haven't got a debt ceiling deal yet though, because the deadlock drives Wall Street lower. After another round of talks between the GOP leadership and the White House ends without a breakthrough. With just over a week to go until this apparent, and I say apparent, June 1st deadline. Goldman Sachs' CEO David Solomon warns of a worsening chance of recession this year, telling the CNBC CEO Council Summit the Fed's path ahead is still up in the air. I don't necessarily see rates really you know, easing at the end of the year based on what I see now. And so uh, I think it's, it's stickier and harder, but, but you know, also uncertain. Bundesbank President Joachim Nagel calls for several more rate hikes from the ECB in its fight against inflation as the European Central Bank marks its 25th anniversary. We'll be speaking to one of its former presidents, Jean-Claude Trichet, later this hour. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will reportedly announce a presidential run later today during a special Twitter session in a conversation with its billionaire owner Elon Musk. And global divots, really interesting actually, jumped to a record of almost $327 billion in the first quarter, boosted by special, special divots. Uh, this according to uh, Janice Henderson, uh, Global Dividend Index. Actually, we'll speak to the author's, uh, author of that report, Ben Lofthouse. That's coming up later this hour. Good morning. I hope I'm not on the verge of one of my historic mistakes where I have to say I was wrong on CNBC because this time yesterday I was saying, look, the base case now, like everybody else, we're going to get a debt deal. They're chatting. They seem like they're just ironing out the wrinkles. And yet, and yet another day goes past. The market's still on tenterhooks. Starts selling off a little bit of that. More safe haven buying of the dollar. Bigger yield on the two-year as well. People are getting a bit nervous. And what do you do at this point if you genuinely believe that a deal will be reached? Uh, because we've seen a deal reached in the past, time after time. Do you put a safety bet on just in case? You know, there is always the chance that, given how divisive politics are right now, that there isn't actually going to be a resolution. So do you hedge? Do you put some sort of form of protection just in well, case? I think that's what's happening. I think people are taking a bit off the table. They're buying the dollar. They're selling down on a two-year, just in case, just in case as well. You know, last time I had to say I was wrong on air, don't you? That was when Musk bought Twitter. I thought no one would be that stupid to throw away $25 billion more than it was actually worth. Yeah, I mean... But this is the smartest man in tech, But apparently. don't forget, we're also talking about, when it comes to the debt-selling issue, short-term issue, do we get there in time for the June deadline, but the longer-term ramifications too about some sort of tightening yeah. in fiscal policy potentially. What kind potentially. of deal, what right. kind of deal as yeah. well? And, and is June the 1st the deadline? I kind of know that that's the way Yellen's been pointing everyone. They're going to run out. But is it the hard deadline? I don't know. Maybe Can they still pay some of their bills yeah, in June? There are a few variables here. There are a lot of variables. But anyway, let's, let's go through the story. Negotiations to nail down a debt ceiling deal are still failing to yield a final result. As we just discussed, representatives for the president, President Joe Biden and congressional Republicans met on Capitol Hill for two hours on Tuesday and remained at a standoff. 
over how to raise the government's borrowing limit before the June 1st, as I say, apparent deadline. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's top negotiator said no additional meetings have been set up. And that's quite a damning line. No additional meetings just yet, Karen. Yeah, let's take a look at how the markets are reacting. More red ink across the board. Uh, the markets are a little bit soft in the previous session as well, particularly around the Dow. And in session this time around, seven tenths down for the Dow Jones index, sliding 200 plus points. The other major markets also reversing. And this was always the undercurrent if you had those big fang stocks just uh, providing, uh, not providing that support to the markets. What would the trade look like? And you can see down more than 1% for these major indices. In fact, it was Microsoft, one of the big stocks, moving to the Dow downside investors are just taking stock of the fangs and don't forget there was a lot of in the narrative yesterday about are we done yet when it comes to the federal reserve on interest rates stateside so i think the market concerned about that story on the sidelines too separate to the debt ceiling issue and as a result fang stocks undermining the trade worth noting that banks actually having fairly decent session up about six tenths of a percent but it was energy that was the outperformer and you saw chevron one of the biggest moving stocks on the u.s market yesterday let's take a look at treasuries we been stepping up slightly on this yield. Uh, slow burn higher, 3.68 is where we're at on the 10-year and four and a quarter percent at the short end. So again, the market uh, very closely watching these debt ceiling negotiations. To the dollar, that strength you're seeing in the yield story has also just underpinned the dollar of late morning session. Sterling euro trying to claw back some of that territory. So two tenths to the upside for sterling, 124.35. We are still below the 108 level on euro, even with a bit of movement this morning. That uh, suggests a slight bounce, about a tenth of a percent. Dollar weakening versus the Japanese yen and versus the yuan in China. To the Asian markets, uh, the trade this morning, this is what we're watching. It is a fairly weak session. The Hong Kong market down the most, 180-odd points in the red or near on 1%. Slightly weaker picture too across in Japan. We've got a drop of about half of a percent. So the market continuing to reverse away from those recent highs above 31,000 points. Shanghai market, uh, that's been uh, a fairly uh, interesting trade. We've seen the data that's come out that's just suggested the reopening theme around China is not as strong as the market had hoped. And we've had a number of just challenging, modestly weaker days for that Shanghai composite. 3230 on the ticket. Uh, we are trading down on Australia too. The opening calls. Let's see if we're in stock with lockstep with those Asian markets. You can see we are. Red arrows right across the board. Yesterday we were down six tenths of a percent. We broke a three-day winning streak, but it does suggest we've got another second day of losses ahead, Steve. So the former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke says the Fed still has work to do to bring down inflation. Uh, ben Bernanke, who led the central bank through the t- 2008 recession, argued the overheated U.S. labor market needs to slow down, suggesting the Fed could guide the American economy through such a downturn without tanking it. That's good to hear. Uh, the academic paper from Bernanke and economist Olivier Blanchard. I remember Blanchard. He was at the IMF. He also got the UK economy badly wrong. Uh, Also noted inflation has evolved since hitting a 40-year high last summer and is now being primarily driven by a rise in wages. Uh, The Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon told CNBC's CEO Council Summit, a lot of C's there, uh, there could be a shallow recession this year as tightening economic conditions impact growth. No question that, you know, peak inflation has come off. Um, You know, when I've when I've talked publicly about this in the last couple of months, I, I sense that it's going to be stickier. It's come off its peak, but it's going to be stickier and more resilient, which is why you know, we're kind of managing and expecting that while the Fed may pause and it will be data dependent, you, know, you might need to see higher rates you know, to ultimately control it some more. 
Right, I've told I've got a hard seven minutes with Bayat, so let's get on with this. Bayat Vitman, who joins us, our partner at Porter Advisor. We love seeing you around with this. Hello, how are you? Hello, good morning. Good, good. Right, so many questions. Um, what should I be more worried about? Here we go. The debt ceiling or US interest rates? Well, certainly US interest rates. Um, the debt ceiling, that's a political theatre um, and uh, it will be resolved one way or the other. This is what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, of course. But am I missing course. something now? No, 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 no. But, you know, it's a pre-election year and, uh, you know, there can be no agreement. It doesn't serve anyone politically to find yeah. an agreement prematurely. So this is just uh, theatre. Yeah, you don't uh, want to be blamed for taking exactly. down the whole of the US uh, debt profile and debt Okay, so in terms of the interest rate scenario as well, it doesn't matter how many policymakers say, look, we are not done. Or if we are pausing for now, we're not sure that we're done. And then you've got Jamie Dimon talking about it and other CEOs talking about it who know what they're talking about. But no, the market still thinks we're going to see swift cuts as early as July. Well, it makes me more nervous when bankers uh, are talking about that because that's to some extent self-serving potentially <laughs> because the only way uh, JP Morgan or UBS for that matter can grow in M&A is basically by helping out the government. So that's one thing. But then uh, politicians, uh, that's another thing, they have to manage expectations. Inflation and interest rates is a lot about expectations. And um, and we have tight, tight monetary policy since one year now, but the lag effects are one to two years. So, you know, so it just eats through the system and we will see bank failures, corporate failures, uh, mutual fund failures, etc. But fortunately, this bubble is kind of deflating um, step by step and not in one big thing and towards normalizing interest rates, normal conditions and that's very positive. But you can expect as a consequence of course that uh, the companies which have to refinance over time here, they are facing uh, then debt service bills which are three, four times higher and some of them will not make it. And that's the environment the next six to 12 months at least. Um, but overall, it's quite positive. I remember, I remember last uh, fall that a Swiss minister was basically recommending people to buy candles because of the uh, <laughs> impending uh, uh, energy crisis. So pretty normal everything. That's the cyclical side, but there's also a structural side. I know you've had a ton of meetings in Germany recently uh, gathering some intel. And one of the problems is that we are now seeing this real change in geopolitics to the point where American companies are making decisions to invest in America. You're seeing supply chains re-geared around the geopolitics. What information have you been uh, just gathering and what's changed in your view around the geopolitics when it comes to investing? Well, with the war in Ukraine, basically, that was the final nail in the coffin of, uh, of the fact that we had basically since the end of the Cold War, trade and business and economics topping all security and political concerns. That's over. Um, and you feel it very strongly in Germany. I was in Berlin. And um, so it's, it's, it's clear and we see it very prominently between the US and China, obviously, where this is all about the, the, uh, the risking, yeah, we speak and we are softening a bit. With Russia, it's decoupling, full decoupling. So that's very important. At the same time, the Western economies have aging populations, post-COVID huge de uh, deficits, basically. And they have to basically improve and reform um, uh, growth and productivity. You know, we have technology playing into it. 
that's that's one thing. And then in Europe, a great day today for the ECB because it's an unparalleled success story, uh, the European currency. But you know, there's a lack of banking union and there's a lack of capital market union. You have to raise this investment capital somewhere. And the EU could, be, could do it quite easily by creating a big common capital market. That's why the US banking system is structurally performing better than anybody else. There's a lot in there to obviously unpack, given it's a big day for the ECB 25 years on. But just circling back to, to the starting point for the central bank, inflation is something they're having to deal with right now. But are we talking about a change in the system thanks to all of these geopolitical events that means central banks, including the ECB, in its next 25 years are going to have to just deal with higher inflation from here? Well, post, <laughs> post 208 crisis, of course, we had cheap and, and, and zero-cost money. And that has created a lot of misallocation of resources. And now we have to deal with the fallout of that. Is this, um, so is this a shakeout that resets the equation or is that a, a, still going to be a problem for many years from here? No, I think, I think it should be a shakeout in the terms of creative destruction. My worry is more that, that there is not enough shakeout and then we just, you know, we are just kind of dealing, uh, you know, with uh, structures which are not competitive really. So it's all about finding the right balance between uh, policy makers and the real economy um, to basically become more competitive again. Right, so that's the worldview, and, and there's a lot in there, as Karen said, to unpack. What, what should our viewers be doing? I mean, what, what are you doing? What are you advising? Well, I think equities are the asset class of choice here, absolutely. But you have to stick to multinational companies, basically, with have strong management, strong product service propositions strong yeah and um, and can gain market share in a downturn and you see sectors like consumer discretionary or hospitality uh, try to book flights try to book hotels uh, anywhere in the world um, there's a boom we have pockets of booms and we have pockets of corrections and and distress and i think that's the way forward so active management when it comes to dynamic asset allocation and security selection and selecting the right type of funds and investments that's the way to go here. So chase the boom. Uh, what about other players? Energy had some life yesterday. The Saudis were talking about whether you know, they might have the upper hand versus speculators. What do you make of some of the other players from resources uh, to energy? Well, I, I think all these um, high dividend plays in energy, um, uh, in raw materials, um, strong balance sheets, dominating positions, they're very attractive investments because they yield you high dividend yields and we have seen dividend payouts at record levels and that's the kind of uh, new old normal, so to speak, that companies are paying dividends. Just a quick word on the dollar because I know you've got some comments on this one as well. It's rallying at the moment despite the concerns that it's going to be uh, less of a global currency and obviously concerns about the debt ceiling, what have you. Is the dollar a safe place to put your money over the next 6 to 12 months? The dollar is certainly a safe place in terms of not losing its dominance in world trade and economics for at least the next decade, so that's completely premature. But in terms of uh, cyclical attractiveness, you know, I would bet on a strong euro and on a weak dollar because the US is simply leading in the, in the monetary and credit cycle uh, and is anticipating that. So beyond that, I would say we will see a weaker dollar, which is positive for its, the economy.
Beat, thank you very much for stopping by to see us this morning. Always good to see you. Beat, we're with us, a partner, Porter Advisors. Now, coming up on the show, global dividend payouts reach record highs in the first quarter. We're going to discuss with Dennis Henderson's head of global equity income, Ben Lofthouse, next. And for more on the deadlock in D.C., as debt-setting talks go nowhere fast, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Headline dividend payouts rose 12% in the first quarter to a record $326.7 billion, driven primarily by special dividends. But underlying growth was less impressive, coming in at just 3% for the year. That is according to Janice Henderson's Global Dividend Index, which has upgraded its full-year dividend forecast to more than $1.6 trillion. Ben Lofthouse joins us now, Head of Global Equity Income at Janice Henderson. Ben, does it matter if the underlying increase in dividends was just 3% when the overall amount was so big, thanks to the special divvies? No, no, it doesn't matter, really. It's quite a, a small quarter um, for dividends, for the normal dividends. And what I mean by that is actually uh, we get lots of dividends coming through Q2, Q3 from particularly Europe and Asia. Um, I think what's what's unusual in this period is to have uh, the size of special dividends. So actually, you know, the, the headline probably is that despite another very, very tough year for companies, you know, the war, inflation, interest rates, you know, they're, they're doing a, an amazing job generating cash and recovering from COVID. Ben, can we talk about who was paying out and who wasn't? Because in the past, we've seen these supersized profits from mining companies, a lot of special dividends declared from that sector, but it seemed as though that was a drag. How do we think about the ones that are paying out now versus those that are just not? Well, I think what we've seen is that the mining company has changed over the last six, seven years. Um, you know, they, they've moved to having dividend payouts that are more variable based on the commodity prices. So they've accepted that commodity prices do vary significantly um, and they'll give dividends to two investors, but they don't want to be, uh, I guess, um, held to account for a very large dividend they, that, that might not be covered because they found that that didn't really help the share price in the past. So I think what, what we've seen is that the commodity cycle, you know, recovered very strongly. It's been a bit weaker over the last year uh, and these companies have just moderated those dividends. But, but many of them have cash balance sheets so they're definitely not cutting them from a position of weakness. Uh, practical about their distributions. Um, just, just on the balance, Ben, good morning to you. And we've talked about this many times as well. Uh, is the balance coming back into Divi from buyback? Because buyback, again, a lot of the shareholders, they don't particularly like them. And, and, and to be fair, I don't think buybacks are particularly efficient given the random nature of the underlying market and how very often the buyback ends up on the wrong side of the trade. But is the Divi coming back, i.e., because it requires more confidence. And, and I say that because it's juxtaposed against the world that potentially is slowing down and going into recession. Yeah, so maybe maybe just just for you, uh, this time we have got buybacks in the report. So we've got a special report in this one that says, well, what's happening to buybacks? 
Um, and actually, buybacks are even higher, and the, uh, the growth is even higher in buybacks than it is in dividends over the last uh, year. So the buybacks are also a record figure. Um, so we're not seeing uh, dividends increase at the, at the expense of buybacks, and we're not seeing buybacks increase at the expense of dividends on a headline level. We're just seeing companies, large companies, maybe like your previous guest was talking about, large, well-capitalized companies, um, you know, just being very successful at generating cash for their investors, and they're giving some back. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. Janice Henderson have done that just for me to put the buybacks in. Thank you so much indeed, for that, right. Ben. I appreciate it. Or, or you might have just mentioned it just for me. One of the two. I think it's the former. Uh, but, but my other point about this is, is in terms of... Um, the, the, the sectors which, uh, well, I've got two different sectors I want to ask you about and in one question. One, tech, telecom, which is just a woeful performing sector. You'll know the kind of names I'm talking about. I have these massive, great big 7 to 9% divvies as well. How sustainable are those? And my second question within that is technology. Are the technology uh, owners now realising that actually the shareholders want a little bit more bang for their buck in terms of income rather than just relying on share price gains? Um, I think... If I take the second question first, um, yes and no. So we've got a clear divide between those companies that are generating a lot of cash and who are distributing that in the form of dividends and buybacks. And I'd put that camp would be Apple, one of the biggest top 10, one of the top 10 payers in this quarter is Apple. Uh, Apple, Microsoft, uh, many of the semiconductor companies are, are paying dividends. Um, but then there's another group um, Meta, um, Netflix, um, and uh, likes of Alphabet, and they they just have, have never come to the dividend list. They are a large, large, large percentage of the buybacks that we see. So that it's not that they are adverse to returning cash to investors, but that group have have not changed their behaviour. So in tech, um, we've still got people returning dividends, and we've still got the same people not. Um, what was, where was, what was the first question on again, just quickly? Um, I was asking you about uh, telecoms and just the woeful yeah. performance is underlying, but actually the fact that divvies are, are, are fat and, and gorgeous in terms of likes of Vodafone and BT. But yeah. are they going to be cut, Ben? Uh, they are being cut. You know, I think we've seen over the last few years, uh, we've seen the likes of AT&T, we've seen the likes of BT. You know, they, they are, the dividends are being cut. I think it's a sector where um, there are two factors there. One there seems to be an endless number of people queuing up, willing to invest more capital to, to compete. So there's, you know, when you put a, a network in, then really it's just it, it, for you to have success, you just have to get people on that network, whether it's um, in the ground or whether it's a, a wireless network. So I think we, we see, you know, the last few years when, when interest rates were very low, you know, people were very willing to invest there. Uh, it, it always confounds me a little bit why they, why they bother having seen the returns being so weak from the sector over the years. The other part is regulation. You know, I, I think the, the sector is regulated. Um, you know, sometimes new competitors are brought in by the regulator to keep prices down. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a sector that has perhaps struggled to, uh, to be able to forge its own path. So I, I would say you know, the, 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 the high yields there are being offered because there's not much growth. But in many cases, also, the, the yields are proving unsustainable. Ben, the uh, markets are serving up plenty of opportunities in terms of chasing yield at this point. I mean, we're talking about the U.S. Treasury curve and just where investors can, can place their bets. As we compare that to the dividend world these days, what are we seeing in terms of 
how attractive dividends are at this stage? Yeah, I think the, the relative attractiveness against straight bond yields of equities in general is, is definitely lower than it was, um, you know, certainly before the interest rates went up. Uh, I, I think the one thing that bonds and uh, fixed interests, you know, don't give you is growth. And so I think what this report shows you, you know, is that if back in 2009, when you'd invested in a, you know, portfolio like this of large dividend payers, uh, you, you, you'll have doubled your income. If you just invested in a 10-year bond at that point, um, you'd still be just getting the same coupon that you got at the time. So I think it very much in this period, uh, the attraction of um, equities for dividends is still that growth element. Uh, and also, you know, if inflation continues to be you know, a bit higher than we've seen in the past, you know, the real returns from some of those bonds have not gone up quite as much as we think they have. Um, whereas the you know, nominal growth, uh, nominal GDP growth, nominal earnings growth is, is quite a big driver of this environment for companies to have a little bit of inflation than to have none. So that's where they, the, the equities sit. I think they are still your probably your uh, your income inflation hedge over the next decade. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.